and I want to begin by drawing your attention today to Tricia Hersey. Who? Why? What? Wasn't that the lady that uh, did our reading? Yes, yes, she's sitting down there in the third row from the front. She came forward, brought our reading, and then went back to her seat. What if it hadn't been just that? What if she'd uh, offered our reading, said, this is the word of the Lord, let us bless the Lord, and then gone back to her seat, and from the seat interrupted the service today and said, today this reading is fulfilled in your presence. Well, I think we'd sit up, wouldn't we? It would be an awkward moment. <laughs> we'd pay a bit more attention. We'd find it slightly troubling. But Luke sets out this story in uh, chapter 4 for us as a very clear, intentional program for Jesus in his ministry. And uh, that intentionality is what makes it so important. And I'd like to lead us for a moment in prayer. Lord, I would love it if these words of Jesus spoken as an interruption, an awkward moment in our service, an unexpected glitch. I'd love it if those words brought to us the same kind of impact as on that first day when Jesus spoke them. By your Spirit, give us ears to hear his voice today and give us a spirit of obedience to follow where he leads. Amen. Well, first of all, I want to do two things. I want to look from this passage at who Jesus is and then at what he does. We're going to look at response a little later, but first those two things, who he is and and what he's going to do. And we're going to begin with who he is. Do make sure you've got that in front of you. It's on page 1031. Now, the passage that he reads is from uh, the prophet Isaiah, chapter 61. It was being used already in Jesus' time as a prophecy of what the anointed servant of God would do. The Messiah, which just means the anointed one. Jesus has already been baptized in Luke's gospel. He's heard the Father's voice. This is my son. You are my son, whom I love. Then the Spirit has driven him into the desert, and he has been sorely tested. But in the confidence of passing that test, he's now back. He comes to his hometown, to Nazareth. He walks into the synagogue and reads this passage to claim that he is the Anointed One, the Messiah of Israel. It would have been a breathtaking moment. And one other element in the who. You may know that song, How lovely on the mountains are the feet of him who brings good news, good news. You won't know it if you're under about uh, 30, because it's very, very old. But do you know what it means? It's also from Isaiah. It's from Isaiah 52, and it's a story. God's uh, king has won a great victory, and Isaiah 52 is the welcome given to the herald 
who has run over the mountains and the hills to announce the victory of God to his people. The good news of Isaiah 52 is obviously not the gospel that Jesus saves from our sins. It is the victory of your king over all your enemies. So they won't trouble you anymore. So when Jesus says that the passage he's read is fulfilled today, the good news is the same. It's fundamentally an announcement that our king has won the victory. It's hard to say how far Jesus is looking forward, but he he knew his Old Testament. He would have known the stories of his arrival in the world, and he knew that he had just come through temptation that would overwhelm anyone else. He had some kind of developing sense then that he is the king, setting out to conquer on behalf of his people, the messianic anointed king. Well, that's the first question answered. Who is this man as he stands up? And if that question is answered with the messianic king, then the next question is going to be, well, what's he going to do? And Jesus outlines different elements of one thing, salvation has begun with me, has come with me. And let me try and capture, if I can, for you, some sense from the words of Isaiah the prophet, because what is promised turns out to be not, so, not, not lots of little things, but actually one big thing. We're talking about the ancient world of Isaiah. And for most, life would have been appallingly tough. They were oppressed by foreign invaders. They were kept poor by taxes designed to keep them under. They were often little better than slaves. Now move that on to the time of Jesus and not much has changed. Not enough has changed. The Romans are in charge. And actually in in this area, in the Galilean hills around Nazareth, they were seriously oppressive. There have been hopes of change, but each time those hopes have been cruelly dashed. The Jewish people's own leaders should have been shining lights to help them, but they've improved their situation not at all. They've been marked by corruption and by petty infighting. Time and again, the light at the end of the tunnel has turned out to be only the light of the oncoming train. Now, though, Jesus is reclaiming the promise of Isaiah and says it is being fulfilled. The poor, not only financially, but the put upon, the downtrodden, they are learning the good news that God, the King, has the victory. Those captive to oppressors without and within, because they were still burdened with this sense of sin that no one had delivered them from, they are learning that they can be free again. Those blind in darkness are recovering their sight. And the ground down are learning to stand tall. All of these are elements in Isaiah's prophecy, and they point to one fundamental reversal. And that is signaled in the last line of what Jesus reads out. It is the year of the Lord's favor. 
In the law of Israel, every 50th year, the jubilee was to be kept. Land and property went back to those who'd had them 50 years before. Now think of our world. Our world is actually founded on the exchange of property. It's what capitalism is. But if capital goes back to where it started from, that completely subverts any uh, basing of your world on finance. And that in turn meant that the confidence of the people was not in finance, in what they could do, but it had to be in their God. The problem is that there's no evidence that the Jubilee ever actually happened. Perhaps then the people longed more and more to experience that which they had never known. Things returning to the way they were supposed to be. With God as the king over his people, who would enjoy his favor. And what should have happened every 50 years became the far-off hope of a year that might finally dawn when things would be back the way they should be. And Jesus now is pulling on Isaiah's words to say, this is the year, this is finally the year of the Lord's favor for you. Now take a look at verse 20. He rolled up the scroll, gave it back to the attendant, and sat down. The eyes of everyone in the synagogue were fastened on him. Why? When Trisha finished her reading and said, this is the word of the Lord, and you knew there was something on the screen, you looked at the screen, but you probably looked back up here. You didn't pay attention to Trisha as she walked down. So why, when nothing unusual had yet happened, were their eyes fastened on him? Well, imagine that I said I was going to preach on John 3.16. For God so loved the world. It's missed out the best bit. And they would have had the same reaction, because Jesus has missed out the best bit. They would have known. Their eyes were fixed on him because he's missed something out. He stopped with the year of the Lord's favor. And he's missed out the day of vengeance for our God. You're going to get it. That was the best bit. That was where their hopes were placed. This was the bit where God was going to throw out the invaders, deal with the corruption, overturn the oppression. There was going to be vengeance. The eyes of everyone are upon Jesus because he's only promised God's favor. How disappointing. Well, that's the story. Jesus has set out who he is and what he's here to do. All disguised as an ordinary reading from Isaiah, at least until he sits down, and sitting down was the posture you adopted to instruct. Moses did it, Jesus did it on the Sermon on the Mount. He sat down and said, today, this has finally come to pass in me. And now I want to go on from those two things, who he is and what he does, and I want to look at the response. I want to begin with the response then. Oh, they love him. Verse 22, they start speaking well of him. This is Joseph's son. To coin a phrase, he's one of us. And that's not just sentimental, it's brutally practical. For most of human history, when one of your family makes it to an important position, 
It means it's their job to appoint you to a position under them. It's Louise Cumberland's job to raise up Emily so that Emily gets a job under her in due course in the county council. Now, we know, of course, that that would never happen. (laughs) I remember reading a short story. I say it's most of human history because I can remember reading a short story about all this from the world of 19th century Paris Paris for my French A-level. It's how things have always been. Except in China, where a thousand years ago they came up with a system of mandarins to get away from precisely that. But that's the context of Jesus' words in verse 23. Physician, heal yourself. It was used as a proverb to mean if you got to be a doctor, lots of money, well, again, that doesn't happen, look after your own people first. So when they say he's one of us, isn't this Joseph's son? They're not just being especially friendly. What they really mean is, we're in line for something good. Because he's under that proverbial obligation to do as much for us as he did for the people in Capernaum. Way. And Jesus denies them. God has always thought of the outsider. The starving widow. This is now verses 24 through to 27. The starving widow far to the north in Sidon, desperate for her son. Elijah told her to fill her oil jars with the oil that remained. She did, and there was a miraculous quantity to sell that just kept on going. Or the army general, Naaman, from Syria, suffering from leprosy, he was healed too. And the people are so angry at this reminder of God's outrageous goodness to outsiders that they seek to kill Jesus, who walks away. There's something important in that reaction then. Do you remember that Jesus never finished the reading? So as he finishes it, it all looks like good news. Yet the people end up trying to kill Jesus. How can that be? How can, you, how can you have a reading that actually omits the bad news, ends up only with the good news, and they try to kill him? Well, it's because the basis of the good news is God's mercy, his favor to everyone. If God's favor is extended to all kinds of people, and formal closeness to Jesus and from his village doesn't matter, And formal belonging to the Jewish people doesn't matter. Think of Sidon, think of Syria. And that's an outrage. And my outrage, ironically, excludes me from the very favor that is promised. What matters about the widow and about Naaman in the end is not only that they were outsiders, but that they were desperate. Indeed, Naaman's servants have to remind him how desperate the situation is for him. The widow and Naaman did what they were told by Elijah and Elisha because of their desperation. The village of Nazareth is not desperate enough, and that's their problem. The promise of God is only of favor, but it looks like indiscriminate favor, and that's an outrage, so let us kill this man. We don't mind him claiming to be the Messiah as long as he's our Messiah. 
And if he's not going to be our Messiah, that we can put in our pocket and get nice things for us, then there's only one possible outcome, and we must kill him. Ironically, they put themselves straight into the text that Jesus didn't read. They are the ones who find themselves in the day of vengeance for our God. That's the response then, and it amounts to a warning. So let's consider our response now. On a normal Sunday, we might say how important it is to enter into the favor that God promises in Isaiah by turning to Christ, the Messiah, as Lord and recognizing him, and that's right. It's vital. But this is Pentecost Sunday, the day when, as we've heard, the followers of Jesus are given promised power to take the message to the outsiders. And on the day of Pentecost, in the story in Acts 2, uh, if you've never encountered the story, uh, then have a look at it afterwards. The promise of power comes not just to those in Sidon and in Syria, but to Medes and Parthians, those in Mesopotamia and Cappadocia, and so on. On and on to those in Fakenham and Dis and Achel. To those on the Newmarket Road, College Road, and Suffolk Square. And to right next door, wherever you happen to live. To explain what was happening, Jesus reached way back to the familiar text of Isaiah. And the message of the king is always going to come to those who've already got a king of some kind. That's why Jesus is crucified as a threat to Herod and a threat to Caesar. The Christian message in our day to Newmarket Road and College Road and Suffolk Square and wherever your next door neighbor comes from depends on our understanding who is already the king in the lives of those we, we touch. It means getting to know them, understanding where the rulers are that need dethroning in favor of the king. And so the challenge of today, Pentecost Sunday, from this reading, is to follow the process that Jesus is opening up. The spirit that anointed Jesus anointed the disciples in that room and sent them out on the day of Pentecost. Can we say that the Spirit is doing anything different in anointing me and you and us? No, we can't. This, text's let, this text lets us into the dynamic of God himself. It's what Jesus thinks later on in the, the chapter in verse 43. He says, I must preach the good news of the kingdom of God to the other towns also. He knows this is the message of the kingdom. It's actually opening up a whole long series on the kingdom that we're going to be engaged in. But you see, again, let's go back. The good news is not just the individual's claim that Jesus has forgiven me my sins. It includes that, yes. But it is a bigger claim a global claim that the Spirit of the Lord God, creator of heaven and earth, rests on Jesus from that time to announce to the world that the King is here and is conquering his foes. Everything that oppresses the humanity that God made is to be defeated. The greatest oppression is sin, and yes, he will deal with that, with your sin and mine. But of course, if you're not desperate enough, you won't want even that any more than they did in Nazareth. But that moment in that unimportant synagogue was one of the moments when the world turns on its hinges. Up to that point, the story is sin, oppression, desperate attempts to do better. But from that point, 
We live in God's favor if we are desperate enough to know it and to want it. This is the start of the kingdom. And we live, yes, we know it, we live in the not yet. Not everything about the kingdom is in place. But we also live in the now. And what Jesus did that day opened up 2,000 years of now. Nothing Jesus says in Luke 4 implies anything other than a continuing process. It has begun. So for us this Pentecost Sunday, I want to point to two words in Luke 4 that tell us what our response might be. The first is anointed. If you have turned to follow Jesus Christ, if you were born again from above, then that can only be so because God has turned you. And God has anointed you by his Spirit. He won't turn you without anointing you. You cannot be born again without the work of God's Spirit, not just touched, but drenched. Uh, An Old Testament anointing was a thorough business. Total freedom for the oppressed comes because we have accepted that we are total servants to the King. Now, it's a normal Sunday, and so I know that that's not true for all of those who gather on a Sunday. And so I, I, I do full serious, fully seriously say make a long line by the prayers. If it is not true for you that you can say with confidence those things, that you have turned to follow Jesus Christ, that you are born again from above, that Jesus Christ has anointed you with his spirit, then what would stop you standing in line? I'll tell you what would stop you. Nazareth would stop you. Because you're not desperate enough. You're more worried about what people will think if you form a line. You're more worried about what will happen if you're the only one. Form a line. Don't be Nazareth, because it's a warning. Secondly, the smallest word in this reading from Isaiah, two. Jesus was anointed do something. And so are we. The anointing of the Spirit does not come separately from the commissioning of the Spirit. To be anointed today is to be anointed to. To what? Well, it's the same. To announce that God has mercy and favor on all, that outsiders are welcome to the table, that freedom and release have come in the person of the King. Few will receive it any more than they did in Nazareth. It's a warning. Most don't want to be thought of as outsiders. Most won't want sin forgiven if it means acknowledging that proud lives have to bow the knee to the king. But it is good news because the king, the king of all, from all eternity, has done everything that is necessary. And we who know our feebleness and our weakness, who know the not yet of living in this world, who know that we are those who get prayed for at church because we know our weakness, those who know that our treasure is in very earthen vessels, we are anointed to open our mouths, to proclaim, to preach, and to release. Do it. We have ministries like Beesom, Food Bank, uh, Christian Aid. There's all kinds of things we can do. Do it. But also speak it. 
speak it, proclaim it, and preach it to the Elamites and the Cappadocians. And actually, one of our members has just been to Cappadocia, as it now is, to preach the gospel. But also over your fence and your office desk, we are anointed. We are anointed too. Hallelujah. And a moment of silence. Uh, for those of you particularly who are thinking, oh, oh, he's gone off on one. And are thinking, oh, how do we cope with this? What do we do? We're going to look at the chapel later and there's not going to be a long line. Oh, dear, what's, what's going to happen? I, I've no idea. It's not my job to worry about that. It's not your job either. But let's pray. Lord, from this moment on in the life of Nazareth, there is no warrant for any part of Jesus' church to say, well, that's nice. It's true for him, but it's not true for me. You know, Lord, the sense of feebleness of weak and weakness that we feel. You know the stresses and tirednesses that mark us out. You know the times that we've said to you, I will do the business, Lord, but can I just get through this bit first? You know the habits and stresses that actually we want to hang on to because they give us the reason why we don't have to face the challenge of being anointed or anointed too. You know all of that. But we've no warrant either for supposing that there weren't people that stressed and ill and all the rest of it in Nazareth that day. And still, Jesus says, I am anointed to do this stuff. And that message beats down the years till it comes to us. And if the kingdom is to come, we recognize that in our own generation, your purposes need a people who are anointed too. Make us that people, we pray. Amen.